Hey, dobar dan. Muli buenji. Zdravo. How's it? Alo. I'm Ruthie. And from Sarajevo to Red Africa, welcome to our podcast about the people and history of the real third world. Forget the telethons. The phrase the third world came about as an act of defiance when several smaller and mainly post-colonial nations decided they did not want to choose between the Western First World or the Eastern Second World, but to choose their own third way. Alone, they could not rival the superpowers, but together they could be a force to be reckoned with. The nations of the Third World weren't merely poverty-stricken post-colonial backwaters. They had traditions of thousands of years of literature. They were the cradle of humankind and civilization and they had fought hard battles for self-determination. And, even more, the events of the world today directly descend from the Third World's past. These stories have been overlooked long enough, and we're going to tell them to you here. Between the 25th of April and the 26th of June, 1945, delegates of 50 nations met in San Francisco to hammer out the details of the United Nations Charter. Forty-six of the countries invited had all been a part of the Allied efforts against Germany, Japan, and Italy. Four additional nations, Denmark, Argentina, Belarus, and Ukraine, were also included after political horse trading. The very first lines of the UN Charter signed at the end of this conference are as follows. We, the people of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, and in the dignity and worth of the human person, in equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Just for the record, there was not a single period in that entire statement at all. (laughs) The Latin American nations present, the Middle Eastern nations, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia had all been colonies of various great powers. And so in a very real sense, the United Nations was an unprecedented recognition of their sovereignty. In the years following the San Francisco Conference, the number of decolonizing nations multiplied rapidly, and so did the unease between the superpowers, which we came to call the Cold War. We see the Cold War as a bipolar world conflict between East and West and between the competing ideologies of capitalism and communism. And at a very, very base level, this is a legitimate, if simplistic, view of those decades. But go one level up and a newer and more nuanced view appears. If you Google the term third world, the first definition that appears on the page is this one from Investopedia. Third world is an outdated and derogatory phrase that has been used historically to describe a class of economically developing nations. And I suppose if you base the word historically on the 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union, this is a very good definition. Indeed, the term third world has been used quite derogatorily. Initially, however, that was not the case. Indeed, the term third world was a source of immense pride at one time and is absolutely something the world as a whole could learn from in the developing chaos of present times. So let's take an extremely brief look at the development of the third world itself. Remember, as always, our podcasts are starting point. 15 minutes of history isn't going to cover all the nuances and there is far more than the bare bones of the story we're giving you today. At the time of the San Francisco Conference, 
Yugoslavia, led by the partisan leader and communist Josip Broz Tito, was staunchly allied with the Soviet Union. Tito had been in a Russian prison camp in World War I when the Russian Revolution began, and found himself allied with the communists who came to power. Bouncing in and out of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, he was a communist agitator who spent time in prison for his activities. When World War II happened, Tito was the last leader standing amongst various groups who pushed back against the Nazi occupation. The partisan movement in Yugoslavia was so successful that although the Red Army was present in helping to liberate Belgrade, Tito successfully negotiated their withdrawal before the push toward Belgrade even began, a Soviet concession other Eastern Bloc nations were unable to secure. Tito's independence was the beginning of a rift between the two communist nations. The Soviet Union wanted a puppet. One year after the San Francisco Conference, the Yugoslav military shot down two American planes over Slovenia. This was expressly against Stalin's wishes, as he did not believe that the Eastern Bloc had the resources to go against the West at that time. Tito, however, had land claims, and he was not backing down from them. In 1947, the Soviet Union formed Common Form, the Information Bureau of the Communist and Workers' Parties. Publicly, the Soviets held up Yugoslavia as a country that the Eastern Bloc nations should emulate. But privately, the reports out of the Soviet embassy in Belgrade were increasingly negative. Other post-war matters were at ahead as well, and they all converged. Albania, Greece, Bulgaria, these were all issues. And it all came to a head at the Common Form meeting on June 28, 1948 in Bucharest. Despite a flurry of angry back-and-forth letters in the lead-up to the meeting, despite the Yugoslavs being called to a humiliating meeting in Moscow, Tito's Yugoslavia rejected Stalin's demands. No Yugoslav representatives were present at the Common Form meeting. The Soviets published a resolution accusing the Yugoslavs of anti-Sovietism, ideological errors, and inability to accept criticism and nationalism. It also urged Yugoslav communists who were quote-unquote healthy to overthrow Tito. The Tito-Stalin split, as it became known, was the opening shot in the development of the political third world. It ushered in purges within Yugoslavia to get rid of Stalinists, purges in the Soviet Union and Albania to get rid of Titoists, a bevy of unsuccessful assassination attempts against Tito that ended only with the death of Stalin, and dire financial straits for the newly independent Yugoslavia. The United States stepped into the void, but they stepped carefully. They were unsure that Tito was not going to go back under the Soviet umbrella. And so from that moment, Yugoslavia was between East and West. A year earlier, on August 15, 1947, India had achieved independence from Britain. Its leader, Jawaharlal Nehru, from the beginning attempted to navigate between the two rival superpowers and advocated a policy of non-alignment. To this end, he was one of the principal organizers of the Bandung Conference, which was held in Indonesia in 1955. Twenty-nine African and Asian nations, representing 54% of the world's population, attended the Bandung Conference, which was specifically held to help the newly decolonizing nations of the world come to an understanding of how to move away from economic dependence on their former colonial masters and to share expertise and trade amongst themselves. Although the West was a planned target for censure from the beginning due to its colonial past, a more interesting situation arose in the East, where a memo was circulated accusing the Soviets of massacres and deportations in Muslim regions of the Soviet Union. This never entered the debate. It did, however, affect the final consensus, 
which was much less pointed, and condemned colonialism in all its manifestations, leaving the specific nations it was referring to unnamed. In 1956, on the Croatian island of Brioni, Yugoslavia's Tito, India's Nehru, and Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser met to begin the process of an entire non-aligned network of nations that would adopt as mantra the statement issued by Tito and Nehru at their 1954 meeting. The policy of non-alignment adopted and pursued by their respective countries is not neutrality or neutralism, and therefore passivity is sometimes alleged but it is a positive, active, and constructive policy seeking to lead to collective peace. This meeting was followed by the twin crises in the Suez and the Hungarian Revolution, two more meetings of post-colonial nations being courted into the non-aligned-slash-third world cause, and culminated in the 1961 first summit of the non-aligned movement in Belgrade. Twenty-five nations participated in this summit, which addressed the concerns of the newly independent nations in economic terms, cultural terms, and in the framing of a world at the mercy of superpowers with nuclear weapons. For about 18 years until the 1979 NAM conference held in Havana, Cuba, the Third World and the Organization of the Non-Aligned Nations proved that there were possibilities beyond choosing East or West. But at the sixth Non-Aligned Summit, Yugoslavia viewed Cuba, and Tito himself viewed Cuba, as beholden to the Soviet Union. Yugoslavia protested Cuba's pushing of closer relations between the non-aligned nations and the Eastern Bloc. In fact, Fidel Castro's opening speech caused the Chinese representative to leave the room and was labeled as completely irresponsible by the Indian delegation, which then went on to state that one could not be unaligned with one foot and aligned with the other. Burma was so bothered by the hostility exhibited that they decided to leave the non-aligned nations altogether. The heyday of third world influence on the direction of world politics was over. Nehru had died in 1964, Nasser in 1970. Tito died one year after the sixth non-aligned conference. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana had been removed from office in 1966. Sukarno of Indonesia had been placed on house arrest in 1967 and died in 1970 with the exception of Kenneth Kaunda of Zambia, who held on until 1991, the giants of the Third World Movement were gone. The movement, based so much on the oversized personalities of of the men who ushered their nations out of colonialism, were unable to keep the world stage without them. Each of these Third World leaders would take several hours of podcasts to merely scratch the surface. To say they were giants is not an overstatement. They nearly universally exhibited a boundless charisma and iron will. And it must be said they were nearly universally somewhere on the dictator end of political leadership. The last thing the third world leaders were bothered by was controversy, whether at home or abroad. In the case of Indonesia's Sukarno, both the U.S. and USSR tried to blackmail the leader with honeypots and sex tapes. Uh, It didn't work, and as the story goes, Sukarno asked them for copies in order to have showings. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana had so many assassination attempts that I actually have a favorite. His fifth assassination attempt on January 2, 1964, involved a gunman. Nkrumah rushed the gunman, struggled with him in a very dirty fight that he was only able to gain the upper hand in by kicking his would-be assassin in the groin. Bitten on his cheek, Nkrumah had his wound treated before returning to the scene of the attempt and then posing with the captured gunman for photographs. 
And for nearly all the third world leaders, political violence, purges, and dictatorship were the order of the day. For some people, living within the third world was a dangerous proposition. Not everyone agreed with the third world leadership, as the assassination attempts on Nkrumah and Sukarno's overthrow showed. There was a dark side to the charismatic men who managed to command the attention of the leaders of the superpowers. But still, there are those today in the third world who look back to a time when the phrase third world was one of pride and feel nostalgia. Nostalgia for a time when formerly colonized nations were able to make superpowers dance to their tune. The etymology of the phrase third world dates to 1952, when it was coined by the French historian Alfred Sauvy. Sauvy based his term on the French estates before and during the French Revolution, writing, The third world, ignored, exploited, despised, like the third estate, also wants to be something. Politically, he applied the term third world to those nations unaligned with either the East or West. And so the third world term was connected rather with the newly found power of independent nations until the decline of the great men of the third world in the 1980s. It was then that the term third world began to have increasingly negative connotations. But those negative connotations were put in place to cover up the fact that there was a time, not very long ago, when the less powerful nations of the world realized their choices weren't limited to one side or another, one path or the other. They could choose their own path standing together. And they did. And for nearly 20 years, they were at the center of world events. It's a lesson we should probably all internalize today. The choices we are given are not necessarily the choices actually available. And it is perhaps when our choices do not reflect the status quo that they can have the most impact. There are very good arguments for no longer using the term third world, and most center along the semantic usage of the term that has become derisive and dismissive. Many opponents also refer to the fact that since the fall of the Soviet Union and the loss of the quote-unquote second world, such categorizations no longer apply. Again, there is merit to this argument, even if recent world events rather illustrate that there is most certainly a second world again rising. The issue is complicated, extremely complicated, but it also needs to be examined in its whole with a complete understanding of history. The history of the Third World did not begin with the fall of the Soviet Union, nor really did it begin with the coining of the term Third World itself. These formerly colonized nations were, in the past, often great powers themselves, and that history is there for anyone who chooses to look at the thousands of years that came before the invention of television news. In future podcasts, we'll be taking a more in-depth look at some of the stories we merely touched the surface of here. There is far, far more to the story than we can fit in a 15 to 20 minute segment, both good and bad, but we have to start somewhere. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Real Third World. As always, we encourage everyone to use our podcast as a stepping off point. There is so much more out there to learn. Please read more, go back further, and for goodness sake, make sure you can find these places on a map. Zdravo, salani buino oke, ciao, au revoir, vidimo se, tuo